Since Israel's six-day war in 1967, when Jerusalem was united under Jewish sovereignty, Israel's defense minister at the time, Moshe Dayan, decided to relinquish control of the traditional Temple Mount back to the Muslims in order to keep the peace. In hindsight, many have asked, was that a wise decision? After centuries of not controlling their holiest site, should Israel have relinquished sovereignty over the prime territory Jews have prayed for centuries to regain? And one of the most intriguing questions is, was the Dome of the Rock originally built by a Muslim caliph as a house of prayer for the Jews? Now, due to the historic Abraham Accords, some globalists are asking, shouldn't the Temple Mount be a shared space for all the children of Abraham? Well, what did Jesus say on the subject? Also in today's program, I'll explore the women's section of the temple and offer some insights concerning a woman whose action at the temple treasury was forever memorialized in the New Testament. The Jerusalem Channel is made possible by viewer support. Thanks for watching. Shalom, I'm Christine Dark. The scene behind me, the Temple Mount in Jerusalem, is one of ongoing Bible history and prophecy. This is the spot, the center of the world, where Abraham offered up his son Isaac, where King David purchased land, and where his son Solomon built the first temple. It's also where Jesus cleansed the temple and where a poor widow woman gave an offering of two copper coins that Jesus said was greater than all the most extravagant donations. This is Jerusalem's most recognizable landscape. To the Jews, it's the Temple Mount, and to Muslims, it's the Noble Sanctuary. Ever since General Moshe Dayan, as Israel's defense minister, made the fateful decision in 1967 to relinquish control of the Temple Mount to the Arabs. Muslim officials claim the holy site is exclusively Islamic because it contains a mosque. That's the silver-colored dome behind me, as well as an Islamic shrine, and that's the golden dome of the rock. Muslims call all of this highly coveted territory the Haram al-Sharif, meaning the noble sanctuary. Presently, the majority of Muslims no longer recognize Israel's historic claim on this ancient real estate. Although a brochure published in Jerusalem in 1925 by the Supreme Muslim Council stated that the Jewish identity of the territory is, quote, beyond dispute as the site of Solomon's temple. Furthermore, this pamphlet entitled A Brief Guide to Al-Haram Al-Sharif also states that this too is the spot, according to universal belief, on which David built an altar unto the Lord and offered burnt offerings and peace offerings. Well, since Israel recaptured the old city of Jerusalem from Jordan in 1967, 
the Jewish state has maintained a fragile religious balance, and the Temple Mount is indeed the most divisive real estate in Jerusalem. However, Jewish activists have been preying on despite putting pressure on the government, and consequently, Israel's government has quietly been allowing increasing numbers of Jews to pray on the Temple Mount. For decades, Rabbi Yehuda Glick has been leading efforts to change the status quo. He characterizes his efforts as a matter of religious freedom. Rabbi Glick asks, if Muslims can pray there, certainly why not Jews? In the beginning of the program, I asked if Jesus had anything to say about the Temple Mount in Bible prophecy. And in Matthew chapter 24, and remember, Jesus was speaking to the Jews in this chapter and not to the church. He said that in the last days, Israel must watch for an abomination that will take place in the holy place. Jesus forewarned, so when you Jewish people see standing in the holy place the abomination that causes desolation, spoken of by the prophet Daniel, and let the reader understand, then let those who are in Judea flee to the mountains. Jesus said, don't anyone on the housetop go down to take anything out of the house, or if you happen to be in the field, don't go back home to collect your clothes. And how dreadful it will be in those days for pregnant women and nursing mothers. Jesus further prophesied to his Jewish brethren and pray that you won't have to flee in the winter or on the Sabbath. Why did he specify that? Because he was prophesying to Jews and religious Jews to this day are prohibited from travel on the Sabbath. And in verse 21, Jesus prophesied, for then there will be great tribulation, such as has not been from the beginning of the world until now, no, and never will be. In other words, the end times will be characterized by unprecedented trouble. Now, as we watch unfolding news concerning the Temple Mount, it's important to know God's own commentary on the subject so I want to read the second psalm to you because it explains the whole Temple Mount controversy. Why do the nations rage and the people imagine a vain thing? The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers take counsel against the Lord and against his anointed one. It says here in Hebrew, literally against his Moshiach, the Messiah, the Christ. And they say, let us break their bands asunder and cast away their cords from us. But now listen to verse 4. He who sits in the heavens laughs. The Lord shall have them in derision. God says, yet have I set my king upon my holy hill of Zion, and I will decree the decree. The Lord hath said unto me, thou art my son, this Day have I begotten thee. Ask of me, and I shall give thee the nations for thine inheritance, and the uttermost parts of the earth for thy possession. You shall break them with a rod of iron. You shall dash them in pieces like a potter's vessel. Be wise, therefore, O kings and judges of the earth. Serve the Lord with fear. Kiss the sun, 
lest he be angry and you perish in the way. And his wrath is kindled. But blessed are all they that put their trust in him. Amen. So let all terrorists hear Psalm 2. For he who sits in the heavens shall have them in derision. And in light of Jesus' own words about the holy place, I want to share a potentially prophetic article by David Mark, headlined, Temple Mount Solution. History shows that Islam shared the Dome of the Rock with the Jews. This article explains that the Dome of the Rock was built in the 7th century by a caliph named Abd al-Malik, but the edifice wasn't treated like a mosque until later in the Islamic period. The dome was built over the rock bearing great significance to the Jews because they believe this is the spot of the binding of Isaac by his father Abraham. According to the David Mark article, an understanding that the dome of the rock was meant to be a shared space for prayer by the children of Abraham would be a peaceful step toward coexistence. However, many Bible-believing evangelical Christians who watch Bible prophecy would see such a development of religious coexistence on the Temple Mount as a harbinger of the end-time scenario that's described in Daniel chapter 9, in Matthew 24, and the book of Revelation, when the figure called the Antichrist arises as a man of peace, but he will eventually desecrate the holy place. It's certainly not far-fetched to believe that Jews and Muslims could share the Temple Mount, and no doubt the end-time scenario is playing out exactly according to Bible prophecy. But surely it's our duty as watchmen and intercessors to watch this space and pray fervently for the peace of Jerusalem. It's biblical to pray the Lord's prayer that His kingdom will come and that He will hasten His return to rule this earth in response to our prayers. And then Jerusalem will have genuine peace. Well, in the article, David Mark wrote that the shrine's architecture reflects former Jewish temples. The Golden Dome sits on four pillars interspersed with 12 columns circling the ancient rock. The four pillars reportedly represent the four ranked encampments of the Israelites in the wilderness, while the 12 columns represent the 12 tribes of Israel. The capitals of the pillars are reminiscent of the tops of palm trees, another Jewish motif. And on the walls, and also at the southern entrance, there are palm, grape, and fig designs, three of the Holy Land's seven species mentioned in the Torah. The shrine represents a navel in keeping with the Jewish idea that the sacred rock is the center of the world. I find all of this intriguing, so I did some more digging and came across another article entitled, The Riddle of the Dome of the Rock. Was it built as a Jewish place of prayer? This article was based upon a book published in Hebrew by Yaakov Ophir. Ophir's research also claims that Abed el Malik, who built the Dome of the Rock, was in fact an ally of the Jews and had constructed the shrine as a house of prayer for the Jews. al Malik was the caliph of Damascus who controlled the land of Israel in those days. 
According to Ophir and others, Al-Malik was actually a follower of the Jewish faith and so ordered his citizens to pray toward Jerusalem and not toward Mecca and to make pilgrimages to Jerusalem. Ophir also maintains that the Dome of the Rock was never built as a mosque and that the character of the building is not typical of a mosque. At one point in its history, the Dome of the Rock was consecrated as a church and was called the Temple of God by the Knights Templar. But when Jerusalem was captured by Saladin, the Dome of the Rock was taken back as a Muslim shrine. Because the shrine was originally a Jewish house of prayer, its builder, Thalmalik, was reportedly called the Righteous by the Jews, and consequently he was slandered as an unbeliever, a kafir, by Islamic historians. And so we might continue to ponder why. Why all this continuing controversy over a place that, after all, the Muslims call the Noble Sanctuary, the Jews call the Temple Mount, and the Bible calls Zion? Well, the Word of God gives the answer not only in Psalm 2, which I earlier read, but also in Isaiah 34, 8. And that verse states, For the Lord has a day of vengeance, a year of recompenses, for the controversy of Zion. You see, God has a controversy with the nations concerning Zion and his hill of Zion. Consider the amazing prophetic timeline in recent world history. The year 1897 was considered the beginning of modern Zionism, and that's when the first Zionist Congress was held in Basel, Switzerland. The Balfour Declaration declaring British mandate approval of a Jewish homeland occurred in 1917. After the horrendous trauma of the Holocaust, the nation of Israel miraculously arose from the ashes in 1948. The reuniting of Jerusalem as the Jewish capital happened in 1967, and then the Abraham Accords between the State of Israel, United Arab Emirates, and the USA began in 2020. So things are looking up for Israel, yet tragically the curse of anti-Semitism still exists, with the United Nations and the European Union always condemning Israel for building up the Holy Land. The UN decries Israel continually, but the God of Israel says that he will weigh the nations in the balance and their litmus test will be how they bless or curse his people Israel and his city Jerusalem. Nevertheless, increasingly, defiantly, willfully, the nations are demanding that Jerusalem be divided. God, nevertheless, has his blueprint. And he declares in Zechariah 12 that he's made Jerusalem an immovable rock. And all who attempt to meddle with Jerusalem will be severely injured by it. As we watch in time prophecy coming to pass, God vows that he will be vindicated in the sight of all nations. The Almighty is going to show the world who he is concerning the controversy over Zion. In Ezekiel 38, 16, God says to Israel's enemies, you shall come up against my people Israel as a cloud to cover the land in the latter days. I will bring you against my land that the nations may know me when I shall be sanctified in you before their eyes. 
Therefore know this, the salvation of Israel will be founded upon the sanctification of God's name. And as a result of the future Ezekiel war, the nations will learn beyond a shadow of a doubt that Yehovah is the Lord and there is no other. No matter what name the Middle Eastern nations call their God. Therefore we declare there is no God but Abba and his messenger is his son Yeshua. And when God says in the book of Ezekiel, I'm going to bring the nations against my land. He's saying that any invasion of Israel happens only by divine permission. It's all under his control. And then God says, when you invade, my fury will come up in my face. So in my jealousy and in the fire of my wrath, have I spoken. The aggressors against Israel are described in the Bible as having great pride and arrogance, but all the more greater will be their downfall and humiliation by the God of Israel, whom they dare to defy. They will oppose Israel arrogantly, but will be defeated in measure, in dishonor and in disgrace. They will come against Israel in great numbers, but will be reduced to small numbers, a remnant. They will terrorize, but will be humiliated by the Almighty God. And then the God of Israel will be glorified, magnified, and sanctified in the eyes of the nations. By dramatically saving his own people, the Lord will confound the selfish and aggressive plans of Israel's enemies. So in light of all this, it's appropriate to pray the prophetic words of Psalm 33, which declares the Lord brings the counsel of the nations to naught. He makes the plans of the people of no effect. The counsel of the Lord stands forever. The plans of his heart to all generations. Blessed is the nation whose God is the Lord. The people he has chosen as his own inheritance. Amen. Now to wrap up today, I promised you a profile about a woman associated with an event on the Temple Mount. Throughout my lifetime, I've heard many sermons on this unnamed woman, a poor widow whom Jesus observes giving her last two coins into the temple treasury. We read the story in the Gospel of Mark, chapter 12. A large crowd had been listening intently to Jesus as he warned them, to watch out for the scribes, he said, as he described human nature in general, really. He said, they like to make a show of themselves by walking around in long robes, receiving greetings in the market. They like to have the chief seats in the synagogues and the places of honor at banquets. But they defraud widows of their houses and for a show make lengthy prayers. These men will receive greater condemnation. Then Jesus sat down opposite the place in the temple treasury where offerings were given, and he watched the crowd putting in their money. Many rich people threw in large amounts. Then along came a poor widow. The Greek text means she was poverty-stricken, and she dropped in only two small copper coins, known today as widow's mites, in her honor. Calling his disciples to him, Jesus said, Truly I tell you, this poor widow has put more than all the others into the treasury, for they all gave out of their surplus, 
but out of her poverty, she has put in all she had to live on. Think about that. Jesus commended the worshiper who gave the smallest gift because her action demonstrated the state of her heart. God wants hearts, not coins. This week I heard a sermon about this widow who is often held up as the model of sacrificial giving. And I like the preacher's interpretation of the account, so different from other sermons. The widow cast all her money into one of the trumpet-shaped collection boxes that were distributed throughout the court. She, and if she had children, might go to bed hungry, but she had trusted God to supply her need. And that's where most preachers stop when speaking on this incident. Now, the court of the women was the temple's outer forecourt into which women were permitted to enter. According to the Mishnah, a colonnade ran around the women's court, and against the wall were 13 chests or trumpets for contributions. These offering containers were shaped like trumpets, narrow at the mouth and wide at the bottom. Incidentally, I find this so fascinating. In Matthew 6, 2, the Lord made use of the word trumpet when describing the almsgiving of hypocrites who sought glory for themselves. Jesus said their ostentatious behavior was like sounding a trumpet before men. But now Jesus singles out this widow as especially praiseworthy. You see, he can discern all of our true motives. Had she been pressured by some con man to give away all her money against her own better judgment, as we so often hear the accusation against TV preachers exacting money from gullible widows? Or some might ask, what's the good in a widow giving her last two cents to an extravagant, beautiful building when she could have used that money to buy bread for an evening meal? Well, here's some background. According to a scholar on Jewish traditions, Alfred Edersheim, the various purposes of the offerings were designated on the 13 trumpet chests. For example, trumpets one and two were appropriated for the half-shekel temple tribute. And into trumpet number three went offerings of women who had to bring turtle doves or a burnt or a sin offering. The offerings were taken out daily and a corresponding number of turtle doves offered. This saved the labor of many separate sacrifices and spared the modesty of those who didn't want their offerings to be publicly known. Edersheim wrote that this trumpet box might have been the one that the mother of Jesus dropped the value of her offering, according to the account of the dedication of Jesus as a baby in Luke chapter 2. Well, we have to look at the context of this incident. The city was filled with pilgrims from all over the world getting ready to celebrate the defining moment in Jewish history, the Passover festival, when they were set free from Egyptian slavery to live in the promised land. And according to the Torah, three times a year, every Jewish male was commanded to appear before the Lord in Jerusalem, and none should appear empty-handed, but all should give offerings in proportion to the blessings he had received. But for this widow, there was no husband to appear before the Lord on her behalf, to represent her and her children on this occasion. She could have ignored the command, reasoning within herself that it applied only to men. 
and that poor as she was, she had no significant amount to offer. From a purely legal standpoint, she could have ignored the offering, but that didn't sit right with her. After all, she was a daughter of Zion, and if there was no one to stand in for her, she would stand for herself. She saw beyond the words of the law to its intent that every family be represented in the great celebrations of God's mercy. So the poor widow entered the court of the women, which was as close as she could come to the Holy of Holies. Prayerfully, she dropped her last two coins into the trumpet. She left empty-handed, knowing she would have to trust God at the end of the day. But through her actions, she was saying, I also belong to God's chosen people. She knew if you truly want to belong to God's people, you must be willing to give yourself away. This poor widow certainly didn't give to be seen by men or to trumpet how great she was. But unbeknownst to her, God was watching. Jesus pointed her out to his disciples. And he memorialized her offering by saying she had given more than anyone else. This tells us that the Lord not only knows what we give, but more importantly, he knows the spirit in which we give. He won't forget or overlook any work of faith or service of love. Our giving and our service to God may be imperfect. It may seem insignificant to both ourselves and to others. In fact, our giving and our works are often condemned or disregarded by others. But the Lord looks deep below the surface. And what does Scripture testify? Well, 1 Samuel 16, 7 declares, Man looks on the outward appearance, but the Lord looks on the heart. Well, I want to encourage you to keep looking up, but also keep doing the exploits of the Lord for he's coming sooner than anyone thinks. So now is the time to complete the works of the Lord. But a final thought. Let's not be deceived. Many in the churches who don't know how to discern the times or how to handle this word of truth are preaching that the church will bring in the millennial kingdom of God before the second coming of Jesus. Many are preaching that the greatest awakening is happening now, but they're not watching the Temple Mount they're not watching the treasury of Bible prophecy unfolding right now in Jerusalem. The greatest awakening is destined to happen during the Great Tribulation period in response to the outpouring of the Spirit of grace and supplications upon Jerusalem and in response to the preaching of the protected and sealed 144,000 Jewish evangelists who are introduced in Revelation chapter 7 as well as the preaching of God's two witnesses in the future, as described in Revelation chapter 11. All of the fruit of this great move of God is described in verses that I want to leave with you today from Revelation chapter 7, verses 9 and 10. It says, After this I beheld, and lo, a great multitude, which no man could number, of all nations and kindreds and people and tongues, standing before the throne and before the Lamb, clothed in white clothing and holding palm branches in their hands, and crying with a loud voice, Salvation belongs to our God, who sits on the throne 
and to the Lamb. Amen. In the meantime, let's stay in touch through social media and also through our website, exports.tv, where you can watch any of our previous videos and discover our eBooks. Please don't forget to download our free Jerusalem Channel app. Always contending for the faith and praying earnestly for the peace of Jerusalem. I'm Christine Dark, Maranatha, and Shalom.